Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Good day. My name's Enrique Alvarez, and we're here for another very interesting episode of Logistics with a Purpose. Partnering with Supply Chain Now and everyone at Vector, this is uh, a very interesting series for me particularly. And this uh, episode that we have today is actually going to be super exciting because I'm a big, big fan of uh, airplanes in general. And we have a very special guest that uh, basically breathes and leaves airplanes. Uh, with us today, and before introducing our guest, let me introduce you to Pedro Serafin. Pedro, sales associate with Vector, you were in charge of a, uh, handling and managing a couple of projects for uh, for Matthew and uh, the Museum of Flight. How are you doing that is, today? That is correct. I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be here. I'm excited to, to see the outcome of this conversation interview and have some very interesting information coming out of here. I know we're both very excited. We're talking about this uh, during the week, and uh, I know that it's your first podcast. Uh, it's almost like it's mine. It feels like, but uh, but this is going to be exciting. And now, without further ado, let me introduce you to Matthew Bouchet, senior curator of the Museum of Flight. Matthew, how are you doing? Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Hey, Enrique and Pedro. How are you guys? Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a great conversation. We're I super excited to planes. have you here. Super excited. <laughs> Everyone's kind of like uh, interested in like finding out how someone gets the job that you currently have. So you can probably go and try to go, uh, try to <laughs> try to go and do something similar down the road. But um, thank you for being here. Oh, you bet. Love to talk about planes and certainly love to talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> this project was very interesting because it was uh, very challenging as well. And I've and well, before we get to that project that we were uh, mentioning, um, how how about you tell us a little bit about yourself, Matthew? Yeah, um, I, yeah. I have been in the museum business for in one way, shape, or form for I I kind of checked this the other day in preparation for this interview. I was like, how long have I been doing this? And it's coming up on thirty three years. Wow. Um, so I. I went to Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and I had no idea what I wanted to be, you know, when I started college. Actually, I went into college thinking I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go pre-med. I want to be an OBGYN because I'm fascinated how you you get from a single cell all the way up to a, you know, a full size walking, talking human being. And then I read the catalog and realized there is a lot of science in math <laughs> involved in that. And I went, I'm out. Um, so I went through quite a few different um, takes on what I was going to be and ended up with interior design because it was as close as I could get to architecture without um, actually having a math or a language credit. Cause I just am, my brain does not do math and I was tired of taking German. So I just went in and ended up with an interior design degree, which was actually very fun. I was the only guy in an entire building full of women, which was really cool. Um, <laughs> but when I got out with this degree, I thought, you know, what am I going to do? So I ended up working for a year as a, as a graphic artist for a small company in uh, Waco. And about a year in, I went, you know, why didn't I do anything with history? I love history. So I decided I'm going to get a master's degree in history. history. So I went back and started flipping through the catalog and I talked to the, to the Dean of the department and he looked at my transcript and he said, man, is this all you got for history courses? These two? And I said, <laughs> yeah. And he went, okay, you're going to have to get caught up. And so I'm, I walked out of his office a little bit, you know, downhearted and was flipping through the catalog again and saw museum studies. And this little voice in the back of my head of my mom 
on the very first day of college and she was looking at the, ca at the catalog at Baylor. She found museum studies and she was like, oh, you should do this. You love museums. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. going to be a doctor, whatever. Well, her voice came back, you know, X many years later. And so I was like, yeah, museum studies. That's like hands-on history. That's even cooler than just normal book history. So I ended up taking every class they had which was another wow. <laughs> two or some odd years after I had oh, already gotten a degree. Oh yeah. I was, I was like that guy on campus, you know, oh, the guy great. with gray hair and whatever. It's like, how long has this guy been here? Um, <laughs> and so I ended up doing that. So and Matt, before you go any further, I'll let me inter interrupt you right there, because I mean, you mentioned your mom and the fact that she kind of knew from the get go that you would have been, better off going the museum route. Uh, why, why did you like museums so much growing up? And, and, and where did you grow up? I guess we can start with that. So well. I grew up in Austin, Texas, and um, there is a large museum there, a natural history museum um, associated with the um, university. And my parents took me there all the time. And I was constantly asking to go. Right out front, they had this huge T-Rex skull which was you know, was always the first stopping point. Right. But the one place that I always had to go to was these dioramas. They had these giant dioramas. And now I remember them as being, you know, huge. They were right. probably right. only three or four feet, but I mean, they were big either way. And so there was the Alamo and there was, you know, Native American cultures and all this kind of stuff. And I was just fascinated with these dioramas. And so even today I still build models. Um, but that was it. I, no matter how many times I asked them to go, they were always taking me to the museum. And then on the, the, the summer, are your parents kind of like, do they have like a special link to the museum? They just kind of like, no, they I, mean, I love just, museums too, but they just wanted to get they you. They were just really good parents <laughs> and apparently willing to go to the museum a lot whenever I asked. Now, every summer we went to New Mexico, we would go to Santa Fe and everything. And of course we were hitting the museums all the time there. So I just kind of grew up going to museums, art museums, history museums, um, you name it, I've been to them. So it was just kind of something that was very normal to me. What about the uh, the law for, for airplanes? And I'm sure you're going to tell us a little bit more about that as we continue down your career path. But is there anything <laughs> in your earlier days that kind of uh, already spoke to the fact that you were going to be fascinated with uh, airplanes or? It's it's kind of funny. Uh, people always ask when they find out I'm a curator of an air air museum, they're like, Oh, are you a pilot? And I'm right. like, Nope. <laughs> that was my first guess too. When I started nope. looking into this. <laughs> nope. Not a pilot really don't have uh, a desire to become one. It'd be nice, but I do right. not need another expensive hobby. <laughs> <laughs> my wife would kill me. Um, so I, growing up, I went to the library a lot too. And I was constantly looking at history books and there was a series of books. I cannot tell you the name, um, but they were geared for, for kids. And there was one on the air war over Europe in world war two. And there's some things in that book that I still remember about how the, it was so cold at altitude that, you know, skin would freeze to metal if you weren't wearing your gloves and all this kind of so there were these very evocative images in my mind of what it was like to be a a, a flyer in world war ii and to and i think that's what did it um, my dad was in the air force but he really didn't you know talk about it much he wasn't a pilot um none of my relatives were in the military but for some reason i just there's something about military aviation that really trips my trigger nice i'd imagine because it has to do a lot with history and well you love history right yeah and it's 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 funny there's it's not so much i'm not interested so much in the the very large overview of history like you know Patton came down from the north and then you know who came up from the south that doesn't really interest me as much as what were the guys in the foxholes wearing or doing, you know, how, how do you dig a foxhole in the Battle of the Bulge when it's so cold you can't get a shovel in the ground? 
or right. how do you stay warm in your foxhole when it's you know 12 degrees below you know that kind of thing that was what i was really interested in so to to try to get a handle on that i became a, a world war ii reenactor <laughs> um did civil war reenacting and that kind of stuff as well but one of my my greatest loves was world war ii reenacting and to the point where i've been to europe a couple of times and and been on week-long reenactments over there in the normandy bocage wow. you know i mean it's you're on the same ground in the same towns where these guys were, you know, 75, 80 years ago. And that's really when it clicks, um, especially when you're in, you know, the hedgerows and you're kind of creeping along and you hear some guy speaking German a couple of yards away and you go, wow, this is really, this is as good as it gets, especially because you're not really getting shot at. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, and tell us how, how did you, um, well, what, what are some experiences you had before joining the Museum of Flight? So I have done a little bit of everything, like kind of like my educational career. I've just been all over the map. Um, once I finally figured out what I was doing, um, I knew I needed a job um, while I went to school. And so Baylor had an outdoor living history museum. It was a it, it was a actually an entire village that had been moved from East Texas onto the Baylor campus, uh, kind of off of the Baylor campus, but close. Um, and it replicated an 1890s cotton farming community. And I, at this point, I was, I was into Civil War living history. And so I was like, well, this would be great. You know, I can, I can work there. So I ended up working there as just a laborer. And so I was helping build some of these structures, um, was doing blacksmithing. I had a guy teach me how to become a, a blacksmith. So I learned how to do, you know, old school blacksmithing. I can put on a shake roof, you know, I can use an ads and all this kind of, I mean, it's just all sorts of stuff that I've never, ever used since. But it's to, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say super practical a, stuff. Oh yeah. Definitely yeah. going to helping you. When the day electricity day. goes away, I'm totally ready. <laughs> hey, Matt can, <laughs> Do something. That's right. I can make arrowheads and build my own cabin. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so I worked there while I was going through school, um, and every once in a while, we would get an opportunity to work, um, kind of just odd jobs. There was a company called Southwest Museum Services that would come into town because they were working on the Dr Pepper Museum and then the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. And they would need hands, so they would hire students. And so I would go in there and I would get practical experience, you know, doing artifact mounts and installing artifacts and that kind of thing. Um, and then after I was kind of finished with all of their courses, I was like, gosh, it's about time to get a job, a real <laughs> one. They decided they were, Baylor was going to start a master's program in museum administration. So I applied for that because. Wow. Why go? Why go into the real world when you can stay at school? Um, so I was one of the first three students to get into the program. So I ended up with a master's degree in uh, museum administration. So once that, once I got to the point of writing my thesis, um, my wife at the time got a job offer in Seattle, and she said, "What do you think?" And I went. I can write from anywhere. So we moved up here and we were here for five years. And of course I finished my thesis and what, I thought, what was the thesis about? Uh, <laughs> I since So my, my mentor said, pick up a, a topic that you can live with for at least a year. And I went, hmm, <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the thing that really makes me excited is aircraft nose art. You know, all the painting on the front, oh, of, a, that's a front of a plane. Yes. Yeah. So I ended up writing my master's thesis um, on the differences between World War, the, the differences of World War II nose art in the European and Pacific theaters. Wow. And this is something, and I guess we're kind of going down this kind of rabbit hole, but I feel it's actually very interesting. Every pilot, I mean, they show it on movies and things like that. Every pilot kind of like had a say into like how they wanted their planes painted or it was something that 
It's just so not every, you know, not every plane had it, but you know, it was definitely the the golden age of nose art was certainly World War. Very II. manual, like oh yeah, and so you know if. Uh, it, it kind of depended on the the pilot and the the type of plane, you know, like a large bomber, like a B-17 or a B-24 or B-29, a lot of times the entire crew would come up with a name. Um, whereas for a fighter, you know, it was a single person aircraft, the pilot would usually name it. But a lot of times, even the, uh, the crew chief who took care of the plane had a say in that, you know, mm. kind of just depended upon the pilot. So you'll see a lot of them where the pilot will have their artwork on one side of the nose and then the crew chief would get a get a shot at their side of the nose. And there were guys who outside of their day job in the, the military did nothing but paint nose art for their squadron or group. Um, there was a gentleman. I'm going really down a rabbit hole here. Go, go for it. This There's a there was a, a, a young man, Corporal Tony Starser of the 91st bomb group in England, he ended up painting over 125 pieces of nose art for his squadron um, and group. Um, But considering how many planes were in a squadron, which is about 12 to 14, that'll kind of give you an idea of the loss rate. He would say that he would, he would get to the point where he was almost done with a piece of art on a plane, of course, the plane would would be flying back and forth doing missions while he was painting because he couldn't accomplish everything he wanted to in a day. Um, and sometimes the plane just wouldn't come back. Right. You know, wow. um, he also said that he got to the point where he was so popular that um, he had a crew helping him. And so the crew would do the lettering. And then he wow. would come in later and actually do the artwork. Well, then, of course, the guys who were flying in the planes wanted the stuff on their jackets. They wanted the same piece of nose art on their back of their leather flying jacket. So he started doing those. Um, and he said at one point he had a stack of jackets by his bed that came to his knee. That, and, oh, wow. and, and that's a lot of jackets. And he said, you know, a lot of these guys would never come back. And so I had all these jackets that I didn't know what to do with. So I tried to give them away, but nobody wanted a jacket from some guy who was dead or captured. And he said, I just ended up burning them. There's wow. nothing else for me to do about I'm it. I'm pretty sure that would have been a really good business opportunity this day. Oh, right? I mean, imagine you know, how you... many people would have loved to wear some of those jackets with all oh, that my history. Gosh. And um... his there, there are a couple of his jackets in the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton. And every time wow. I'm out there, I go and I just stare at him and go, that was done by Tony Starser. Wow. I mean, well, that's just- incredible. And we'll put some uh, we'll put some links and notes to this conversation so that people can actually uh, learn a little bit more, not only about Tony, but some of these other Oh, that would be great. Nose artist. Well, if you send us the links, we'll be more than happy to do so. Plus, we would love to actually go and dig around and spend some time kind of thinking about this, which is fascinating and usually not the kind of things that people think about (laughs) when they're thinking about the world war, right? But it's it's amazing. But so go ahead. I I apologize. I oh no no no! Uh, Trust me, I will totally go down but... these rabbit holes. Is you throw a rabbit hole at me, I'm <laughs> diving in it. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, so no, so you were so you were saying you actually finalized your thesis and moved to Seattle, and that's right. Kind of so I'm here in Seattle. I've got my thesis, and I'm thinking everybody's going to be just pounding at my door. You know, you've got a master's degree in museum studies. You're awesome. We want to hire you. Yeah, that did not happen. (laughs) That did did not happen. So I was trying, you know, no surprise to get into the museum of flight up here and they weren't hiring. Um, And so in desperation, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to become a docent, you know, I'll become a volunteer there. So I started going through their program, and about that time, I got a call from my old mentor back in at Baylor, and he said, you know, um, Southwest Museum Services, whom I mentioned earlier, is hiring, you know, they're going to do the new museum here at Baylor, and I want you to be the project manager, and I went, wow, okay, they're in Houston, right, and he said, yeah, and I went, pass, no, <laughs> no desire to, to move to Houston, <laughs> um, and he kept bugging me. And about the third time he was just like, come on, seriously, I want you to. And I went, 
is this just something that you want to happen or is this really and he said call dr griggs and dr griggs at the time was the the owner and ceo of the company so i called him and he said yeah you know when can you move down here we want you and i went oh this is legit so (laughs) i plied my wife with a new car i said if we go to houston you can get a new car which she desperately wanted and needed. And so off we, <laughs> off we went and we moved to Houston. So I ended up working for Southwest Museum Services for about five years um, is what they called a project manager, but it was really, it was kind of a liaison position as I was the person that would go to a museum. Okay, let me kind of tell you what Southwest does. They're still in business. And what they do is, they will build, they will do any exhibit for a museum, anywhere from a single case all the way up to literally the entire museum. Um, and they will design, build, and install. They are a full turnkey kind of operation. And so I was one of the people, they had hired about three project managers all together. Um, and so what I did was I was kind of the person that would go out to the museum and meet with the client and, and get an idea of what they wanted and then start doing artifact surveys, seeing what they had in their collections that would help tell the story that they wanted to tell. We would pick out artifacts. We would pick out um, archival materials, photographs, that kind of thing. Then I would take that back to the designers, the actual people that were doing the design of the museum, and we would all work together to to make a, you know, a full blown product. Um, And it was a ton of fun. And that's where, oddly enough, my um, degree in interior design came in very handy. I can read a set of blue lines. I can draft. Um, It was I could. I could easily span both sides of the conversation. Um, you know, there are some people that you can just, you can put a, a set of blue lines out, plans, and they're lost. For me, I look at them and the walls come up off of the paper and I can see it in almost three dimension. It's very easy for me to work that way. Um, so it was very simple for me to communicate things back to the designers, the designers to communicate to me, and then for me to talk to the, to the client. Um, did that for about five years, got fired, <laughs> ended up um, taking a job with the um, Lone Star Flight Museum, which was in Galveston at the time. And I lived up in far western, northwestern Houston. So I would get up at like 530 in the morning to be on the road by 630 to be there by like eight. Um, well, yeah, it was, was an a, hour and a half. That commute. was a commute, right? Oof, it was rough. Um, and if I left any time, literally any time at like four Oh two, that's it. You hit traffic. That was it. Probably three hours. Yeah. <laughs> it, it turned in from an that's... hour and a half, you know, to, to two hours, three hours. Um, luckily I only did that job for about three or four months before I got a, uh, a call. Well, here's this thing, you know, I, I've had a lot of help in my life, Um, but I've also been extremely lucky, but the biggest help I've ever gotten was just from my own pluck. So my first wife, her family lived in Denver and there was an air and space museum there, Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. And I had looked them up when I was writing my thesis. And so I called them up one day um, and I said, you know, hey, I'm working on my master's degree. You know, I'm going to be be graduating here pretty soon. You know, you guys should hire me. And li- literally the guy on the other end of the phone laughed at me. And he was like, we're all volunteers here, man. We don't hire no anybody. <laughs> and I was like, oh, OK. Well, anyway, one time when I was in Denver, I just decided I'm going to go check this place out. So I went down there and I was walking through the museum and and kind of looking around and went back up to the front desk and I said hey is your CEO or anybody here I could talk to and they went yeah so this guy came out and I introduced myself and he said yeah here let me just show you around and we were walking around and 
I was telling him what I was doing and how I would love to, to work for him and all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, you know, we would love to have you, but do I spend the money on you or do I spend the money to fix these lights in this huge hangar? And I said, you hire me and I write the grant to fix those lights. Well, apparently that was the right thing to say because about a year later I went back to visit him and he said, let me take you to lunch. I've got a, I've got some things I need to tell you that you don't need to know. And I'm going to ask you some questions that are none of my business. And I went, <laughs> okay. <Let's all> right. <laughs> <go."> <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure I want to go to this lunch anymore, but all right. <laughs> so during the lunch, he said, look, we, I am on my way out and the museum is hiring a new CEO and they're going to need a curator. I want you to apply. Wow. And I went, Oh, okay. He goes, I will let you know when the job gets posted, then you can apply and we'll get back to you. And I went, okay. And sure enough, about a week later, I got an email saying, Hey, it's on this website, the Canpo website, make sure you apply. So I applied, got a call and they flew me up from Houston to Denver and I applied and, you know, walked through and the big tell for me is when I was walking through and we, the, the CEO was walking around and he said, okay, and here's your office. Or, yeah, I mean, you're like, so I already got where it. <laughs> the, the person will have their office. And I went, hmm, that sounds good. Um, the funny thing is, is that I had worked with Wings Over the Rockies before when I was with Southwest Museum Services. So there's this odd connection in everything that I've done. And wow. It's just so bizarre because the first thing I did when I walked into this interview is here's this brand new CEO and he's got all of these plans laid out and a bunch of the work that I did for Southwest. And he goes, yeah, you know, you work for Southwest. I remember your work. And so here it is. And I was like, this is bizarre, you know, but I don't think it would have happened if I had not just made that first, you know, walk through the door, cold call interview request, you know, and it, and I I certainly don't think it would have happened if I had not really had my brain turned on and said, you know, that thing about, you know, I write the grant. Um, So I was definitely firing on on all cylinders that day. (laughs) 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 That's some sheer luck. Right. It all fell into place really, right? It it really did. It really did. Nice. Cause it, yeah, because it may not have been possible if you didn't work before making those um, designs. So yeah, maybe that, yeah, yeah, it's just it's it. I kind of look back on it and go, man, it all just really fell into place. <laughs> As to the project that we worked on, that we will be talking about in just a moment, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about falling into place. Definitely. <laughs> all right. So, and how did you become curator of the Museum of Flight? So after Wings Over the Rockies hired me, I was there for 15 years um, as their curator, and it was a blast. I got to do so many things, meet so many people. Um, I, I built my own. I, w- I I built my own exhibits. Um, it's just it, it was very much. Even though we had a pretty large staff. Um, nowhere near the size of the Museum of Flight. I mean, by for us, large was you know fifteen or twenty. Um, but for me, I was a I was a department of one until about a year before I left when I got an employee. Um, so I'm very used to doing things on my own, and that's been kind of a change for me up here. But anyway, I was I was with Wings for fifteen years, and then one day. I walked into the marketing office where all my buddies were and my phone went ding and I looked down and there was a text from LinkedIn from Diane Holmes, who is an HR person here at the museum. And she was saying, Hey, do you know of anybody that might want to work for museum of flight? And I texted (laughs) her back and I said, well, I might want to work for Museum of Flight. She goes, oh, we thought you guys, you would, you know, you're very comfortable where you are. And I said, yes, but you're Museum of Flight. Right. (laughs) Turning down a job from, you know, the Smithsonian or something. And so she said, oh, okay, well, let's set up a phone call. So this was supposed to be like a 
you know, 20 minute phone call. We ended up talking for like an hour and a half and anybody listening to this podcast right now can realize why it was an hour and a half. Because I, like to, <laughs> I like to talk about planes. <laughs> uh, no, it's an incredible story so far. And I think like, uh, to your point, everything's falling into the right places and the right things. And I feel like that's kind of how life works sometimes. It's just weird like that, right? You just do things that yeah. you don't realize you did back in the day and, and they somehow help you, uh, down the road. So, uh, no, but so you had this long conversation with, uh, I did. And she said, you know what? Thank you so much. Um, we'll be in touch. And I thought, okay, great. And then like weeks went by and I thought, wow, how did I blow this? <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's okay. Right. I still got my job here. It's all as well. Um, and then I got an email from her kind of a, a week or two later. And she was like, I am so sorry. It took me forever to get back to you. Um, here's what happened. <laughs> and there had been an incident up here where we had a windstorm. Oh. And so the museum is situated, you know, here's the main museum and here's the, the secondary museum. And there's a road that runs between them. It's called Marginal Way. And it's, it's well-traveled. Well, this windstorm came through and one telephone pole went down. And then like 20 other telephone poles went down and all these power lines in fact one of them literally went into a car and split the windshield right down the middle and two people were in the car and luckily it went right between them and they were they were fine but they were trapped in the car because of the electrical well the power was out at the museum for like four or five days there were people trapped in both buildings because of the power lines it was a major disaster <laughs> sounds like a good excuse. so she was like this is why i couldn't get back to you i'm so, I'm so sorry and i was like okay that's fine and she goes okay well the good part is is we want you to come up for an interview so i flew a, or actually i did a, a phone interview first um had a phone interview with three or four people um one of my boss, my boss now was actually in the area and he said, Hey, I'm going to stop by the museum. I want to meet you. And I was like, sure. So we walked around and talked. Um, and then again, I didn't hear back from him and I didn't hear back from him. I was like, Oh, I totally blew this. Totally. Blew. <laughs> and by this time I was invested, you know, now I'm right. really, now wanting, you want it to go. Right. Now I want to go. Um, and, uh, so I get this, then I get another, Hey, we want to fly you up. So I it was like, Whew, okay. So off we go. My wife and I fly up here and we spent about three days because we thought, you know what, let's just hedge our bet. Let's assume that I am going to get this job position. Um, and so we did some house hunting while we were up here and, you know, just, it, I think they had already made up their mind, which is, which is great. Um, so I ended up coming on board in September of 2019. Nice. And if you kind of, if you think <laughs> right. back, September of 2019 was normal. And then about six months later, five, five months later, we were hearing about this thing called COVID and we were like, what's that? Eh, right. you know, no right. big deal. And so then it started getting a little bit worse and we thought, you know what, why don't we put together a, a team to kind of keep an eye on this thing. And one day we were in our meeting and it was, we're going to keep everybody home tomorrow and we'll just wow. see how this goes. And so I'm sitting at home now, you know, two years later, <laughs> um, you know, luckily we that are must open. have been, I was going to say, yeah. So I was going to ask you just about that, like uh, impacting the pandemic. How does a museum survive? Cause uh, of course, one of the main things about a museum is that people have to go there and yeah. look through the exhibition and we and, were uh, we were downright closed i mean we right. shut our doors for quite a while um one thing i will say about this group of people that i work with is they are amazing um our leadership is amazing but it it starts from the bottom up i mean from our security people to frontline workers that are at the front desk to, you know, the CEO, everybody is committed to seeing this place, you know, work. Um, we were able to pivot like I'm sure you guys were 
during the pandemic, we went virtual yep. for a ton of stuff. We didn't stop um, hitting up our volunteers and donor base um, for money. We went out and hit the government up, you know, so the PPP, we hit up that shuttered venue. We, we hit up that grant. Um, and we ended up raising so much money um, that we came out much better on this side of the pandemic than we were going into it. Um, wow. We had some layoffs at the very beginning um, and we're still down about 5% with our hiring. But on the other hand, you know, we're still open and we're actually a better museum than we were before um, because we've we know kind of how we want to do things in this new world because let's face it things are not going to get back to just 100 normal you know things are definitely going to be different after this Um, but we're okay with that because we know how we want to we want to work that's a that's an incredible kind of learning experience for anyone that's listening, right? I mean, like a lot of companies kind of went through this at very challenging times. Some of them are still going through it, but but it's amazing to hear stories like the one that you just told us, right? Like people making difference, everyone super committed from the from the bottom up, and uh, and you are stronger now than what you were before, and we're super happy to to hear that because of course it's not only an amazing museum, but uh, um, but it's definitely a really exciting kind of uh, story to tell people like how the pandemic uh, became this vehicle to, to become better. And of course, supply chain now, uh, we're big into logistics. Uh, we have to dive into that part as well. And I'm sure that with you, you have the very unique opportunity to live and experience logistics from a, from a very unique uh, standpoint, right? I mean, because you have all this airplane. So if you could tell us, kind of a two-part question. If you could tell us a little bit more about the museum and so people can really understand how big this museum is and how amazing it is. And of course, we'll put all the notes and we'll put the links so can, people can visit okay. it. But uh, but afterwards, if you could tell us like um, some of your kind of biggest logistic projects or challenges that you have faced, I think that would be very interesting as well for our logistics community. So, <laughs> so we are a big museum. You know, me coming from... Um, 20, 25 person staff museum in Denver to this place that at in, in the before times, you know, we had 200 people over the summer. Our normal was about 150 and we would staff up to about 200 staff members during the summer. And even now we're well over a hundred employees. So we are a big place. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, like, Everybody else in the entire world, we could not find masks and hand sanitizer to save our life. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> right. You know, um, so that was one logistical nightmare. And then all of a sudden the floodgates gate, opened and we ended up with literally a 40 foot truckload of hand sanitizer. And it got dumped in the back in one of our storage areas. And we thought, what in the heck are we going to do with this? You know, we, we don't need literally 11,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. So we stashed what we thought we would need and we're still left with, you know, three quarters of a truckload. So we started giving it away. Um, I started calling high schools and um, elementary schools, anybody I could think of. And a lot of the staff was helping out on this. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and we just started giving it away because people were in the same boat that we were. They couldn't find this stuff, but we had a dearth of it. So we were reaching out to other museums, other nonprofits, and we ended up giving all of it away. You know, and that was that was amazing. Um, now we're well stocked with both hand sanitizer and N95s and KN95s and that kind of thing. Um, so that's that's been good to see how all of that works um, and just be able to give back to other places that probably 
that were struggling just like we were, but we were in a better position to, I think, leverage some things. You know, we just, we're big, we're well-known, we, we know people that always helps. But then when we were, we were able to, we certainly were able to get back. And that just, that was really awesome. Very interesting though. And how about you tell us about our recent project that we worked together? Yeah. Talk about logistics. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, if any of your listeners have ever been to the museum of flight and say the past five years, they will, they may remember a plane that was sitting in the front in, in our parking lot, kind of off to one side, very sad. There were two little planes. There was a, a blue Fiat G91 PAN pan, and then a MiG-17. And they were aircraft that, that had been in the collection, but we had done what's called deaccession them. And that's that's a fancy name for basically saying, hey, we don't want this in our collection anymore. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit our collecting rationale. Um, it's surplus. We just don't want it. You know, and instead of chopping the thing up, we always try to find homes for things. Um, so when I got to the museum, this plane was sitting out there and I was like, so what's the deal with these guys? You know, they don't look very pretty and they're, oh, well, they're, they've been deaccessioned. We need to get rid of them. We have plans to send the, the Fiat to Italy, but with the pandemic, you know, right. nothing's happening. I was like, yeah, we we're going to get this thing out of here. So I kind of jumped in and took over um, the, the whole thing and just started sending emails and was like, let's get this done. We can get this thing out of here. You know, um, we will do all the since you guys can't send people to us. It was going to a museum um, in northern Italy called Volandia. We had, that was the deal that we had worked with them. So. Have you heard this museum before? Is it like I had uh, never heard of Volandia. Yeah, but they were very very excited about getting one of these. They were planes, wildly right? so. The thing about this particular plane is, think of it as um, either uh, a Blue Angels or a Thunderbirds. Mm -hmm. um, it it was for their what they called the Frecce Tricolore, which is their aerobatic team. And this plane had flown in the, with the Frecce Tricolore for many years, um, and they didn't have a, an example. So they were really excited to have this plane. Um, and the idea was that they were going to send people over, disassemble the plane and then ship it back. Well, of course the pandemic shot that down. And so it had just been sitting there. And so I kind of reinvigorated this whole conversation and said, look, if you guys will, will pay for the, the, any tools and construction materials that we need, we'll do the work and put it in a container. You guys pay for the container and the shipping, but we'll get it in it. And they went, sounds fair to us. So we worked out a deal. And so we ended up taking the wings off and putting the fuselage on these wooden crate or containers with a, with a metal framework that we built, um, which was all great until we needed a container. Because about the time we started to get ready to ship is when all hell broke loose in the shipping community. Right. No you equipment know, availability. Oh my gosh. There are stories all over the news and you're seeing all those ships sitting out, at, out off offshore of LA. Seattle is a mess. You know, anything on the West coast, you just don't want to ship to. Um, and so I had been working with a gentleman who had set me up with a broker in Canada And then all of a sudden I got an email and I think it was from you, Pedro. Um, and I'm like, who is this guy now? What's going on? <laughs> um, and it was like, Hey, we've got a container for you. And I was like, really, when can you drop it off? And you were like, well, tomorrow. And I was like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. We're not ready. <laughs> we're not quite ready. Um, but once we were ready, man, that sucker was right there. Um, And so what we did is, is we worked with a, we worked a, a pick and drop. So container came to us. We took it off of the trailer. Trailer went away, took us about, it only took us a day to load the thing, but we gave ourselves three days just to be safe. because frankly, we had never right. done this before. You know, we had, we had gone into CAD and drawn this whole thing out 
and and CAD said that it would all fit. But there's a difference between CAD and reality. And so I was like, uh uh-uh, let's lay out on the ground the dimensions of the the container. So we took some tape and, you know, and then put everything in it and went, okay, it actually will fit. That's that's Um, a very, very good best practice that people that are listening to us probably should take notice of. (laughs) That's incredibly professional. Like the way you guys did it, you had it in CAD, you modeled it first and foremost, then you actually stage it, if you will, and then you actually attempted it to, uh, to load it. That's yeah, I think I just, that's, uh, that's great. I think that saves a lot of uh, a lot of time and effort. It's it's not me being smart. It's me not wanting to look stupid when when things go wrong. So I was just hedging my bet. I was like, this thing has got that to was go super right smart. the first time. That was super smart. And I'm guessing everyone <laughs> in Italy is happy at the time. And uh, how what was their reaction? You think? Because I'm guessing after the shipping, they received it. Is it like opening like a Christmas present for them? They see the container. You're like. Oh my it's, goodness. I think it's going to be more like an Easter present because the last <laughs> right. time I checked, it's right. still sitting right. off the coast of um, Norfolk. Um, the ship is still sitting there. So, but Vector did exactly what you guys said you would do. You had the container on time, the container left on time. It got to the railhead. It got to Norfolk. It got on the ship. Um and I will, I will say this, and this is, you know, I'm not being paid for this. Um, <laughs> you guys were amazing to work with. I will, I will 100% say that. And if I, I ever need to ship anything else again, I will, I will definitely use you. And I will tell people who to call um, because you guys were very professional. And more importantly, you were, very, <laughs> you were very patient with me when at one point, you were like, okay, well, we can bring the thing here, and it there was there was a lack of communication on my part because I in my head I was thinking this container would come on a tilt bed and we would just roll it off this tilt bed and it would sit right on the ground, which is the case for smaller containers like twenty footers or whatever. This was a forty footer. That's not how they work. So. You were like, well, we'll just, you'll need a crane. And I went, I can't use a crane because I'm literally like yards from an active runway. The FAA gets really bent out of shape. And it was late in the day. And I was like, we got to call this off. We got to call this off. And you guys were like, okay, yeah, just let us know when you're ready to get it out there. And so, of course, we scrambled and we worked with some other companies near us that had some really large forklifts and some very talented forklift drivers. And so we arranged for them to come over. And so within, you know, two or three days, we we had pivoted and turned back around and you guys were like, sure, fine. And so here comes the container and we just picked it with the forklifts and dropped it right off. And that was kind of nerve wracking for me um, to see this giant 40 foot container right. on one forklift, but it, it was for the drivers, this was nothing. They they move very large pieces of equipment every day, and so they were like, done. It was a it was a really great team effort. I think uh, it's a it was a pleasure working with you in the museum, and of course, you just told the history behind it and the story behind it, and then just, um, yeah, it it was a pleasure working with you and your team as well. And of course, if there's any other, we love planes and we love this big project. So if there's any other plane uh, that you would like us to help with, we'll be more than happy to do to do so as well. And now, uh, Matthew, again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I would love to kind of uh, give you a couple more minutes just to kind of tell us a bit more about the museum. What do you guys have planned for the future? What can people look forward to, especially if you're leaving in the Seattle area? What are some of the highlights for this year? And uh, of course, if uh, listeners are probably going to be very interested in, in, uh, in, in this episode, how can they connect um, with you? Um, you know, number one, first and foremost, we are open. You know, the Museum of Flight is open for business. We are open seven days a week. Um, you know, we open at 10 and we close at five. Um, despite how crazy it can get out there, you know, we have powered through. We do require masks. 
um, which is for everybody's safety. Right. We prefer that you be vaccinated and we will ask for a card um, again for everybody's safety. We've got some neat things being planned. We've got tons of stuff online. Um, so go to www.museumofflight.org to kind of see what we've got planned. We've, we've got online things going. Um, not sure I can talk about this, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, <laughs> we are working on a new traveling exhibit with the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco wow. that is going to come to us over the summer. And it's Walt Disney in World War II. It's not princesses and Dumbo kind of stuff. Um, it's 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 how Disney helped with propaganda in World War II, um, and it's really fascinating stuff. You know, there are film clips of the Seven Dwarves wow. talking about the Ancephalese mosquito and how to combat malaria. Um, it's it's just an amazing amount of stuff and how, how the artists that worked for Disney, all the men ended up a lot of them going off to join the military, which then opened the door for women artists to come in. So world war II kind of broke the glass ceiling um, at the Walt Disney corporation for women artists. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a neat exhibit. I will definitely keep, keep an eye on our website for that one. We'll start to announce that pretty soon, even though I've kind of let the cat out of the bag here. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. We're uh, super excited that you actually gave this exclusive <laughs> to us. Uh, that's yeah, I the may, first. That's I may the be first. looking for a job. So if you guys are hiring, you know, <laughs> it is a great story. It's been, it's been super uh, fun and, and excited to talk to you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure talking to you. The museum of flight, is the largest independent nonprofit air and space museum in the world, period. Like that is the place to be if you actually <laughs> like planes. Uh, and so uh, for everyone that's listening, let's continue supporting the museum uh, in any way we can. I'm guessing that you guys are also open to receiving donations if people would be willing to do that too. Oh, absolutely. And they can check that on, their, on your website as well. Sure. Matthew, thank you so much. Pedro, this has been fun. Thank you very much for joining. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us. Once again, this is Enrique Alvarez, uh, Logistics with Purpose. If you enjoy conversations like the one that we just had with Matthew, please don't forget to subscribe, like, and share with your friends. Have a great week and see you next time. Bye.